0: Good to see you. Uh, My name's Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And uh, it really is a pleasure to be here with you today and to be able to bring the life lesson um, as we jump back into the book of Matthew. And so we've been going through a series recently called God in the Movies, which I hope you've enjoyed. We've had a great time going through it. We'll get back to it, but at the moment, uh, we're going to change pace here for a little while, and we're going to jump back into Matthew And we're going to take this up in chapter 15, kind of where we left off at verse 21. If you um, have a Bible or a phone, you want to find your place, go for it. We're not going to get there quite yet. But uh, yeah, it's great to be back. And uh, we're going to jump into this this morning. Uh, I just want to do another plug really quickly for Eric Samuel. Tim will be joining us July 1st next weekend. It's going to be awesome. Invite your friends. Make sure to get out to that. And uh, we'll just be having the one gathering at 909 for that one. And so let us look at Matthew chapter 15, and let's just read the first verse, 21. And it says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and we will stop. And we will stop there for a few moments because that is enough for this moment. To us, that might seem like a small detail. That might seem just like a geographical location or just, you know, a little background that's being given. But beneath and even above the surface, there's so much more happening here in this part in the scriptures, in this part in the text. And there's something happening here that for the original audience, this, even just reading this would have set off red flags for them. It would have set off something where they would have been like, really? Jesus is withdrawing there? Jesus is going there? And so we will explain that a little bit. And so I want to give us some background so that we can grasp the original meaning and intent here. And so uh, join me here on a little biblical history as we start today, and I'll try to keep this engaging for us. And so first let me ask you a question. Anybody here like surprises? Anyone? You just love surprises. There's a few of us who like surprises. How many of you kind of like to know the outcome of things? Anyone, right? Who's that person here like me who looked for your Christmas presents when you were a kid, right? And you search the house, you know, and you you want to find things. And uh, some of us, who is the person here who would slap me over the head for doing so? Um, I think we have some of those as well. I think we're all a little bit different when it comes to this. Some of us like surprises. My wife just loves surprises that I have to literally, like, me toe everywhere uh, when it comes to buying her gifts. And, and uh, when she gives me something, it just drives her nuts if I start shaking it, if I start trying to guess, like that. that just drives her crazy. But for me, I'm a little bit more calculated, and I kind of like to know things a little bit beforehand. It helps me prepare for them. But in this passage of Scripture, we are going to look at a portion that is going to be a surprise to the original audience. The original audience is probably not anticipating what Jesus is about to do here. And so, before you can see and fully understand the present, sometimes you have to go back and understand what happened before. You have to understand the backstory. You know, It's like picking up in a movie series at around the seventh movie, and I take flack for this all the time, but I've only seen one Star Wars movie, okay? And it was like two movies ago. I don't even know what it was called, episode something, anyone? <laughs> right? And like, you know, exactly. And this is typically what I'm greeted with when I talk about my lack of Star Wars knowledge. When I was a youth pastor, I literally had a youth one time say to me, and you call yourself a youth pastor. When I told him I haven't watched Star Wars, you know, (laughs) tough crowd, eh? Very tough crowd. But, you know, I, I literally, I went to this movie a couple movies ago. I don't even know what it was called. But I enjoyed it, thought it was fun. You know, some stuff on the screen was cool. The graphics were cool. And even the story I was sort of able to pick up on. But then afterwards, when we went out for coffee and uh, the guys wanted to discuss the movie and everyone at the table was just, like, into it, right? Like I say, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't mean this in a rude way, but they were just nerding out, right? Just loving this movie and just talking about all these details about it. And when the conversation came to me, I was just like, like, oh, that was awesome, eh, right? Like, you know, that was just so awesome. I didn't really have anything to contribute to the conversation because I hadn't seen all the movies before. I didn't know the backstory. I didn't know the history. Didn't, didn't really understand what came before that led us into the present moment. You know how does our past inform our present and you know interestingly enough there is a group of people in this world who really understand how the past informs the present right and this is literally how Montreal Canadiens fans cope right Uh, the present which we know is you know the playoffs would have been fun right but it's those past glories of Stanley Cups that keep this fan base going right they cheer, they reckon on, you know, someone's great, great, great grandpa was able to experience those cups and that glory and all that came with it. I'm sorry, Canadians fans, okay? Just please forgive me today. There's grace, right? I had to pick on you a little bit. But they understand the past, and they look back to it, and they honor it. But for some of us, we're on the other side. We try to pick up here and now, and we miss so much, and by doing so, we don't fully grasp or understand the story the way we should, And that's what's going to happen if we just go to this text, if we just go to this portion of Scripture without actually looking at the rest of the Bible, we're going to miss something that I believe God wants to show us. And so how does the past inform the present? Well, Jesus withdrew to this place called Sidon. And so let's paint a story. In Genesis chapter 9, we read about a man named Noah. And it's after the flood, and Noah plants a vineyard, but then he gets drunk, he ends up naked... And his son, Ham, sees him and tells his brothers about it all. And so some of you are thinking, okay, this seems like an odd mix of the home and garden, you know, channel and an episode of Jerry Springer already, right? But that's kind of, you know, it's kind of how this is going here. They cover him up and then things turn ugly because Noah wakes up and he realizes what has happened and he curses Ham's family. And beginning with Ham's son, Canaan. And in the ancient world, cursing was a big deal. It was a huge deal, especially from your father. You see, cursing was more than just some words. It was more than just an insult in that culture. But within those words, held deep meaning and belief about your father's favor, about your father's blessing, your father's validation. To be cursed was devastating in that culture. It stayed with you. It haunted you. It hung over your life, kind of like a dark cloud. It was no laughing matter for this culture. And so Ham's son Canaan was cursed, which meant that Canaan's sons were cursed, beginning with his oldest son. And what was his name? Sidon was his name. And so Sidon had a number of sons, so many that Sidon went on to become the father of a nation. This place we're talking about that Jesus arrived at. A nation that receives mention many times throughout the Scriptures, but often not with the best impressions or with the best reviews, if I could say it like that. And so we read about this in Judges 10, where the Sidonians conquer and oppress the Israelites. And so right there, we see that this is a nation that is oppressing. This is a nation that isn't living in peace with the Israelites. And it's interesting to note that it starts with a father cursing his son, but the wound festers. To such a degree that a few generations later, the son is actually oppressing the father's nation. Wounds always linger. Wounds always spread, don't they? It's also interesting to note that, you know, how if a wound from a father isn't dealt with and eventually healed, it inevitably affects more people than just the people who were originally involved or the people originally wounded. Why are these two nations at war here? Well, it's because the father cursed the son, and it was never healed. It was never dealt with. And the scriptures continue to have such resonance in our culture today. You know, even in movies, we see major themes of unresolved issues with other family members, with friends. And oftentimes, when our relationships have these kinds of wounds, not only do they affect our lives, but they often spill over into the lives of other people. And the results often leave more victims on the trail behind it. In thousands of years, things have changed, and yet things haven't at all. In the same breath. And so we, we read about Sidon and 1 Kings as well. You see, King Solomon marries a number of Sidonian women who lead him to worship their goddess Ashtoreth. Several generations later, the Israelite king Ahab marries the Sidonian princess Jezebel. Anyone remember that name? Who turns out to be trouble? For this person, we read about that in First and Second Kings. The prophet Isaiah uh, predicts terrible things for the Sidonians, telling them to be silent and ashamed, and that they will find no rest because of all the wrong they've done. And we read about that in Isaiah 23, Jeremiah 25, and chapter 47. The prophet Jeremiah talks about the coming day where there would be no help for Sidon. And so this was a nation that was being known for oppressing, being known for evil, being known for doing terrible things to the Israelites. Ezekiel talks about the Sidonians going down with the slain in disgrace. You could read about that in Ezekiel 27, 28, and 32. And so the Sidonians, as assuming you've made the connection here, are the bad guys in the story (laughs) up until this point. They're not looked upon favorably. They're looked upon as people who not only cause trouble but cause great harm especially to the nation of Israel. They're the proverbial bad neighbors, if you will, the evil empire, the oppressors next door, which brings us to Jesus' day, and which brings us to the text that we are looking at this morning. You see, generations of animosity against Sidon had built up to the point where many from the Jewish tribe wouldn't dare even think about going to Sidon or even talking to someone from there. The bias went all the way back to that story about Noah that I started with today. And as we all know from our world, when bigotry and hatred have generations to fester, they often become very, very entrenched within the people. And it's tough to break that. It's tough to get away from that. It's tough to see things differently. It's tough to, 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 to let that go because it festers and it entrenches within ourselves. And so that was the common belief among Jesus' tribe. Jesus' tribe, the common belief among them was that we are the faithful. We are the chosen, the ones whom God loves. We are in, but enemies like the Sidonians or the Canaanites, they're out. We are on God's side, but they are not on God's side. But then in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus does something shocking And he goes to Sidon. William Barclay says this. He says there are tremendous implications in this passage. Apart from anything else, it describes the only occasion. And this is interesting. I just learned this this week. The only occasion on which Jesus was ever outside of Jewish territory. The supreme significance of this passage is that it foreshadows the going out of the gospel to the whole world. And it shows us the beginning of the end of all the barriers. It describes the only occasion recorded in the gospel where Jesus was ever outside of Jewish territory. And so Jesus is going to a nation where the people are believed to be cursed. The curse resting on them all the way back to Noah many generations earlier. And Jesus is about to introduce a new way of being. He's about to introduce a new way of thinking to his disciples and to the people reading this someday. In a highly religious culture, like the ones Jesus lived in, people held their views and convictions and loyalties with clenched fists. Kind of like now, right? How many of us ever hold our opinions like that? How many of us are ever strong on what we believe? You see, stories, and that's not a bad thing. I'm going to clarify that. But in this culture, it was with clenched fists to the point where, you know, we don't just talk this out. We, you know, we have this out, right? Right? stories about who had God's favor and who didn't, who was cursed and who wasn't, who was in and who was out helped, held tremendous power but according to Jesus God wasn't so much interested in that but he was interested in something else. And so let me ask you a couple questions. How open are you to what the spirit is doing at the moment? How receptive is your word to a fresh your heart, sorry, to a fresh word about grace? Are you hungry to learn, grow and be transformed? are you ready to begin to see things in a new way is the questions that we would have had to ponder to this original audience. Or are you so attached to what you've once or always believed that it kind of makes you unable to grasp things from a new perspective? See, I say all of this background to set up this, the first verse in this portion because when Jesus enters Tyre and Sidon, he is entering unfamiliar territory, new places, and likely him and his disciples had this feeling that they were out of place here that they didn't belong. You ever had that awkward feeling where you were out of place? Anyone? Thank God for cell phones, right? Because we just pulled them out and we act like we're busy, right? And I don't know if you've ever done that before, right? You're in in a place where you feel kind of out of place. You know, I'll just act like I'm supposed to be here. Kind of mingle in. You know, you're somewhere, maybe an event, and all you can think to yourself is, what am I doing here? How did I get here? And so with that, let's read our text this morning in Matthew chapter 15. The scriptures say, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the story of what Matthew calls the Canaanite woman. The story of a profound faith that this woman has as a Gentile. In some ways, it's our story for those of us who aren't Jewish in this room. In some ways, we can relate with this story. You see, this is the story of Jesus' work in the whole world. And so three things that might help shed some light on this text before we start looking through this conversation. Number one, at the very end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is ascending into heaven and he gives us what is known as the Great Commission. And what he tells us to do is he doesn't just tell us to go into one part of the world. He doesn't just tell us to go into the Jewish communities of the world, but he tells us to go into all the world, to all The nations, he says. You see, up until this point, when the work of the Messiah was done, they were not to be sent to all nations, but at this point, they were mainly among the Jewish people, except for this one time in the Gospels. Number two. Immediately before the story of this woman, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's teaching about what defiles a person. He's talking to religious people and I, I get the feeling they're, they're really pushing him here, pushing his patience in a sense. What makes them an outsider and what makes people unclean as they defined it, that's what they're worried about. And Jesus points out to them that it's not the dietary food laws, it's not what you eat. You know, it's not, not, not about your hands, it's not about your cleanliness, about being clean or unclean. But what matters is what you say and how you live your life. And Jesus says, what really matters is the condition of your heart. This is a heart matter. This is about the heart. This isn't about do's and don'ts. This isn't about a list. This isn't about checking things off. This is about your heart. And Jesus was challenging the religious systems that they had in place. The things that made a person clean or whole. And this wasn't always met with joy by the religious people and the leaders of his day. And then finally, number three, finally, following this story of the Canaanite woman, he heals other people and he feels, feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Earlier, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and some fish. And one thing to note about this feeding and about this miracle is that many Gentiles would have been present in the crowd that day when he fed the 4,000 in the Decapolis was the region they were in. Perhaps even more Gentiles than Jews. And so something was beginning to shift. And so here we have Jesus walking into new territory. And it appears he's, he's going to get away and find some quiet and find some rest. Most commentaries suggest that Jesus, for him, this was a time of deliberate withdrawal. He was wanting to get away. He knew that the end was coming, and he wanted to rest. You know, up to this point, he was doing miracles. He was doing amazing things. The crowds were following them. He couldn't get away from them. You know, people were coming up to them, and, and, you know, he, he had mercy on them. He was doing healings, but he needed some rest, and he needed some time to get away. And there was this place, you know, in Palestine where he could be sure of, sorry, There was was no place in Palestine at this point where he could be sure of privacy at this point. And so what better place to withdraw than to tire in Sidon, outside of Jewish territory, into what many Jewish people would have thought of as enemy land and wouldn't have dared of traveling to? Surely he would find quiet, surely he would find rest to be with his disciples here. But then again, maybe not so fast. Because as we've read in Matthew 15, even in these parts, Jesus was not freed from the demand of human need. He's not free from it. And when this woman comes and says, have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David, she's actually using a messianic title by saying that. And so somehow she's heard of him. She's heard of what he has been doing. And Jesus responds with silence to her. The scripture says he doesn't even say a word. Jesus did not answer a word. And we don't expect that. Silence. Silence from God? Maybe you've been in a a desperate place before in your life where you've received silence from God, silence from God when you've been in that desperate place. Anyone? And this woman was certainly in a desperate place in her life. You know, it reminds me of Oswald Chambers, who wrote the book, My Utmost for His Highest, which is, you know, written in kind of an old English language. He says, has God ever trusted you with his silence? Pointing to silence as kind of a test. And, you know, that reminds me of another quote. As soon as he asked that question, it reminds me of Mother Teresa's quote, where she says, I know God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. That's kind of the flip side to that, right? Right. But she brings her request before him. And she receives silence for that moment. You know, it makes me think of the prophet Habakkuk, to go back to the Old Testament. You know, just demanding an answer from God. You know, I'm just going to sit here, and I'm just going to wait until I get an answer, until I hear from you. I think many of us have found ourselves in situations like that. You know, some people, when God is silent, we do many things. Some of us start asking questions. Some of us, we make ourselves busy. We try not to think about it. Some of us, we doubt, and we, we seriously doubt. God, where are you? I, 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 I've brought my request to you. I'm, I'm getting silence here. Some of us walk away altogether. People respond to silence in all kinds of ways, but not this woman. You see, this woman, when the silence happens, she only gets louder. And she won't give up. But she begs Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus is Quiet. And then she shifts the focus away from Jesus and puts it on to Jesus' disciples. (laughs) And now they're bugging him to send her away because she's bugging them now, right? And, and, And they're getting a little bit upset. And so, you know, what do they mean when they're saying to Jesus, you know, send her away? Well, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that she's annoying and she's being kind of obnoxious and, you know, we just need to, you know, she's getting in the way here. You know, it's kind of like when the moms brought the kids to Jesus. They seemed to think it was inappropriate and not a good use of his time. And Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. And he embraced them with open arms. Or they could be saying, you know, send her away by healing her, but, but just do it so that she'll go. And that she, so she won't bother us anymore. We're here for quiet. We're here for rest. And Jesus responds by saying, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And she's not from Israel. And this isn't what I was sent to do. And so that's likely what is happening here. And it seems odd that Jesus would say something like this, doesn't it? Woman begging for healing, silence. Then they start begging Jesus, and this is his response? And it wouldn't be unheard of us to read through a passage of Scripture like that and think to ourselves, what's happening here? I remember when I got this passage of Scripture, I opened it and I thought, oh, wow. I'm kind of seeing this in a new light, but the idea that the good news of the gospel and that his mission was for the Jews at first is a common theme in the New Testament. You see, in Matthew chapter 10, a few few chapters earlier, he sent the disciples out to, to, to do ministry, and he said to go out, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, for the kingdom is coming, but he also gave them this instruction. He said, don't go to Gentile towns or Samaria, but only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so we had this moment where Jesus' ministry was focusing on this nation. He was focusing on the people of which he was a part of. You know, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, God had started a plan through Abraham and Sarah. That through these people and through this nation, that all nations eventually one day would be blessed. And so God has called Israel to be a part of the salvation. And in Isaiah 49.3, he says this, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And so this is a promise that he made to Moses, to Abraham, to David, and God won't go back on his promises. You see, Israel herself turned her back on God many of times throughout this process, but God has always thought to restore, redeem, and use them. In Isaiah nine six, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. There we go. There's a shift in thinking. You know, you can almost say that if you want to look at a life verse of Jesus, this might have been a close one that would define him, would define his ministry, would define what he was about. You see, when Jesus stepped foot on the planet, it wasn't a redo, but it was a rescue mission. And it was to restore God's nation. And then Jesus even goes a bit further in verse 26, and he replies to her, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Those could be fighting words. You see, Jesus is saying it is not fair to take the food for the children and throw it to the dogs. And you know, you hear something like that, and your first thought of your me goes off. You're like, really? That doesn't sound like something my Jesus would say. What's he meaning? What is he getting at here? You see, the word dogs here is the Greek word kunaria, which isn't referring to street dogs, but household pets. But nonetheless, it's still not the kind of thing that anyone would have loved to have been called and stood up with honor for. And so we only have a few options of what Jesus could mean when he said this. Our first option is this, is that Jesus held this attitude. That he meant what he said. And that he was referring to this lady as a dog. And I struggle with that interpretation because Hebrews 4.15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. And so I have a tough time accepting that. Right? Because Jesus grew up in the midst of all this, remember. It had its effect on him. And, you know, he didn't want to help Her, some people would say because of the nation she was a part of but I struggle with that I struggle with that point of view because of what we read in Hebrews this verse seems to suggest that though he may have faced this temptation through his upbringing that Jesus still never sinned and I believe that 100% I don't believe that this was a prejudice attitude I don't believe that this was a racial attitude here I believe something more was happening here a second thought that this could have been was that maybe Jesus was being sarcastic here in an ironic way You know, flipping this whole idea that Gentiles are dogs upside down. Maybe he's being ironic and trying to invoke a response to his sarcasm. It could be the case, but the text doesn't overly suggest that. A a third way of looking at this is that maybe Jesus was testing this woman. Jesus, by saying this, is in some ways testing the woman's faith or even the disciples' faith. It's possible, but nothing in the text overly suggests that for us. But the fourth point, I think, is where I land, is that Jesus himself was just tapping into the cultural norms of his day. And he was about to teach a point. And he was about to bring a shift in thinking for those who followed him, for the 12 disciples. And he was using this cultural thought as a lesson into what once was and how things are actually going to be. Listen to what it says in the Babylonian Talmud. This is one of the texts that was written a couple hundred years after Jesus' day. But it certainly gives cultural perspective as it's written. It says the sacred food was intended for men but not for dogs. The Torah was intended to be given to the chosen people and not the Gentiles. The Torah being the first five books of the Bible of the Old Testament. You see, the words here mean, when we talk about food, we're talking about blessings. We're talking about the blessing of the Messiah. We're talking about miracles. We're talking about the kingdom. But when we use this word dogs, we're talking about the Gentiles, much like the Canaanites, much like these people from Sidon. And the religious and economic tensions here, some people just ignore this stuff, but Matthew chooses not to, and he heads right into this head first. You see, when Jesus stepped into this world, He didn't step into a world of people holding hands and patting each other on the back and a place of great unity, but He stepped into a mess. When Jesus stepped into the world, He stepped right in the middle of a deep-seated conflict between Jew and Gentile oppressors. But here's what we also need to remember, that when Jesus stepped in, He actually stepped in on a particular side of this conflict just by how He was born. And He was born as a Jew. And so he grew up celebrating Hanukkah. He grew up, you know, celebrating Passover and festivals about the Jews finally finding liberation from their Gentile oppressors. From the years of pain that were inflicted upon their nation. He grew up reading stories, likely, about the danger of the Canaanites, how they were oppressed by them. This would have been common to his upbringing experience. Jesus watched as these two groups fought. He likely seen his people crucified at times at the hands of the Romans. And this was his first time leaving Israel from what is recorded. And you have to wonder, what went through his head as he he went into this hostile environment? What was he thinking as he went there? You see, Matthew doesn't tell us that. All we get is this story about the Canaanite woman. And it suggests that Jesus was not immune to these realities of his day. He didn't grow up sheltered away from everything. He didn't grow up in like this little bubble where he didn't have to hear about this stuff and hear the complaints of his people and hear about the stories of past slaughters and past oppressions. He didn't do that. You know, think about our lives. And I think it's true that each and every person on this planet has their own circumstances to which they are not neutral. They may not all be ethnic tensions or religious tensions, although there is certainly no shortage of that in our world today. But we all have our own particularities, our particular views, our particular allegiances, whether it is to our families, our churches, our politics, our nations, our nationality. And so this was the same for Jesus in the world that he grew up in. And it's very likely that because of this, we think differently than Jesus does. We don't always see things as we should, and we can't assume that Jesus stands by and supports every one of our particularities. Am I right? Or any, every single one of our biased views. We dare not try to attach that stuff to him as though he sees everything the same way we do. We dare not do that. You see, and I think this is a vital truth for us this morning, because when Jesus starts to look more like me, I'm not talking about me looking more like Jesus, but when Jesus starts to look more like me and I start shaping him that way, when he holds my same views on everything, on every issue, when he talks like me and he walks like someone who grew up in my situation in Canada, when he looks like that, maybe I'm not worshiping Jesus anymore. I know that's a funny way to put it. But what if I believe that God only extends mercy to the people that I want to extend mercy to? What if I think God will forgive only the things that I would forgive? Or what if I think that God looks, will be as merciful and generous to the poor, only as merciful and generous as I am to those folks? What if I think God should be working in the world in the exact same way I would be working in the world if I was God? My thought on this, friends, is that if we ever get to the point where we can box God in and and determine his ways and his every thought, beyond doubt, we've ceased studying God at that point. But we are likely studying a God that we've created ourselves. We're likely studying someone who we've put our own particulars and our own points of view upon. And so, do we have our own particulars? Of course we do. Starbucks or Tim's? Starbucks, anyone? Okay, a few of us, Tim's? Wow, I think, I think Tim's won the day here, right? I think this next one's gonna be easy. Uh, bombers, people? Woo! Rough Riders. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go, we had a couple here. I think, I think this next one's where we're really, really gonna start the fight, okay? All right, here we go. Pancakes or waffles? There we go. You guys are with me. Awesome. We're on this, right? And these are all minor particulars, but it it just shows that we each have our preferences. We each have the things that we prefer over other things. And, you know, and it's funny because these are all minor particulars, but these are things that I've seen people lose their minds over sometimes. Anyone else? Where I've seen fights and divisions and, like, you know, weekend get-togethers become weekend smash-outs, right? You know, it just... Over such little things, you know, we get in such great arguments and we have such anger over stuff. Because we see things differently. You see, we all have areas in our lives where we're not neutral and where we take a side or choose a preference. And so we have to ask the question, do we want God to look and act a certain way? Are we ever in danger of making God more like us instead of us becoming more like him? You see, and the particulars of Jesus force me to come to terms with the particulars of myself. And if I let them for me, they protect me actually from creating God to be what I want God to look like. You know, Voltaire said it once, right? Uh, God created man in his own image and then man returned the favor. We've all heard that before. But scripture tells us in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were tempted and no doubt, Jesus would have had reasons to, to hate the Gentiles, seeing everything that had happened around him. I mean, how many little babies can Herod kill in Bethlehem anyway? Like, just go through the stories. Go through what had happened in the scriptures. And then John the Baptist, you know, closest friend, ministry partner, being beheaded. That's fresh here on, at this point in the, in the, in the gospel. All the way back to Herod, all the way back to Pharaoh, all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, we see this line go back and many more. And these Gentiles, who in this portion are kind of referred to as dogs, you know, they're violent, and they hurt my people, and they they don't deserve none of the bread that Messiah has to offer. That would have been the mindset. That would have been the thought of a culture who thought that God was on their side it would have been so easy to see why many people felt that way and so when this woman came to Jesus and begs him to heal her daughter he's silent and for some of us that's like strike 1 and then he then then she begs the disciples and they ask him and he says well this isn't my job i was called to this and that's strike 2 for us and then she goes to the feet of the master himself and he says no and you know that's strike 3 it's almost like you're out but not this woman not this particular lady No, she doesn't give up, and she doesn't stop, and she persists. And this is where the story goes from challenging, and it goes to beautiful. It goes from getting us to question to teaching us a principle. And and, and she's not done, and she's got something to say, and Jesus could not be trapped. You see, Jesus was like this master of words, wasn't he? They often tried to trap him. They often, you know, would bring things to him, like, should we pay taxes? And he'd be like, well, look at the coin, whose picture's on it? Caesar, okay, we'll give it to him, right? And he, he had this way of getting out of, out, out of words, and he was a master of words, and he was able to just answer properly with such wisdom. And for this woman caught in adultery, right? Even there, we see him do something beautiful for her, riding on the ground and, and, and stopping people from stoning her. But in verse 27, we see the words, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table that fall, sorry, from their master's table. That's how she responds to Jesus' statement. And that's a clever response. That's an impressive response. And this woman, showing to be a master of words in a sense herself, what impresses him most about her is her faith. Is her faith. That she doesn't quit. And she keeps asking and she believes that there's going to be crumbs. And her thought probably is, all I need is a crumb, Lord. I just need a crumb. Give me a crumb, please. And she knows that there's going to be crumbs because Jesus is the Messiah and Messiah is a ministry of abundance. And she knows there's going to be leftovers and we've seen that in the feeding stories. We've seen that in all stories in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And there's an abundance of healings. There's an abundance of grace. There's an abundance of forgiveness. There's an abundance of life. And the children are going to eat up and get full, right? But there's going to be crumbs that fall from that table. And that's all I need. And Jesus says to her, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. And you will not hear that spoken of anyone else in the Gospels. This is exclusive to her. Someone from enemy territory. Someone from a territory that Jewish people weren't supposed to associate with. She's the only one whose faith is called great. No one else in scripture gets that distinction from Jesus. No one, except for a Gentile. And this would have been a wow moment. This would have been a surprise moment that I talked about as we started today. And so what are a couple take-home points that we could take from a story like this? Well, the first one is this, this idea of faith and persistence. Faith and persistence. Remember when, what the disciples said when Jesus was going to feed the 5,000. He asked them, why don't you feed them? And they said, how are we going to do this? And they were scrambling. They had no money. They had no food. You know, no one believed you know, that it could be done. They didn't see it. They couldn't envision a way in which Jesus could meet such a huge need. And so when Jesus asked them that question, they just kind of stopped and put their hands up and thought, we can't do this, but not this woman. This woman met roadblocks. This woman met cultural roadblocks that probably should have had her walk away that day and quit talking. Even the association of a woman talking to a man would have been enough. And yet, she kept persisting. She kept believing, and she kept going to Jesus. When no one else thought that it could happen, she did. And so she gets tenacious, and she begs the Messiah for some help. And Matthew tells us, after Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full. When he fed the 4,000, there were seven baskets full, showing that even in the craziest miracles, that there is abundance, that there's leftovers. And that even despite these obstacles, even despite the opposition, even despite the doubters— Those getting angry and those annoyed at her, she persisted in this. and She didn't quit. And Jesus said to her, great is your faith. Great is your faith. You see, faith in this story is trusting Jesus. Faith in this story is trusting Jesus despite the obstacles, despite the opposition, despite everything that was politically incorrect about this. She trusted him. And it's a message to us, I think, this morning. If there's anything we take from this, maybe maybe the message for you this morning in your own life is just don't quit. Don't give up. Keep asking. Keep going to Him. Maybe for some of us this morning, we've been discouraged over something, and we've seen obstacles, and we've seen things that just seem to act as though there's no answer to this. Maybe, Maybe the faith of this woman for us this morning says not to stop and not to give up, but to keep asking and to keep pressing on. You see, persistence, for some of us today, the message is don't give up. We can learn, learn a lot from this Gentile woman, and we can get tenacious about it. You see, amazing faith, what was it about this woman's response that caused, ca- caused Jesus to call her faith great? This was the only time in Scripture, as I said, that this was recorded. There was a trust. There was a persistence. And it was seen here, and it just made an impression upon him. And so the words for us this morning are don't give up keep asking, keep going before him, keep spending time with him, keep seeking him. Wherever you find yourself today, wherever you're at, I I, I encourage you this morning, this woman's faith can encourage us today just to keep going and to be persistent. Secondly, another thought that we could take home today is that we are all loved by God, all of us, this whole world. In a room like us, I bet you there's some of us in here this morning who feel like outsiders, we probably feel like sometimes we don't belong. I, I, I feel that way sometimes. I think we all feel that way at times. It's weird, right? You can go through stuff in your life where you just feel like, ah, oh, I just feel so outside of all this. And this Canaanite woman, because of Jesus, was, she would have been seen as an outsider, but she wasn't an outsider. And he granted her her request. And he showed mercy for her. And he used this as an example of future things that were to come, not just for one nation, but for all nations and for all people. And the truth is, is that for each of us in this room, to those who believe we've been given the right to be called children of God, we read about in John chapter one. And you're a child of God too. You're made in his image. The resemblance is striking. You are God's child as well, and God loves you. In Romans fifteen seven, we read this, accept one another, therefore accept each other, just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. You know, when we accept each other, when we care for one another, we actually bring glory unto him. When we care for one another, when we welcome even the enemies, even those who think differently than us, even those who, who, who walk differently than us, even those who vote differently than us, even those who have different particulars than we do, you know, when we accept one another, just as Christ accepts us, we actually bring glory to God. It's a beautiful thing. And finally, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with this, Jesus brings us new ways of thinking. And he shows us not to ever get to a point in our lives where everything's just predictable and everything's just, oh, I know that. Oh, I've heard this before. Oh, you know, yeah, that's great. That's phenomenal. Have we actually allowed ourselves to be surprised by Jesus in our personal lives? Do we give him that opportunity? Do we leave that room? You see, Jesus, when he walked the earth, he chose 12 disciples. And that was intentional. Because he was intentionally showing them something from the Old Testament 12 tribes of Israel. He was showing them something. And Jesus is now a new start for Israel, but not just for Israel, but for the rest of the world, as we hear about in the Great Commission. You see, the deep wound which has happened in the past is conditioning what is happening in the present in this story. And Jesus exposes the ugliness of that wound, that divide, and he goes back to Jews. That, sorry, that goes back to the Jews being oppressed. And Jesus is depicting all of this to expose the ugliness of all this, the racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles that existed. Jesus reveals mercy not just for one nation, but he reveals mercy for all nations. Not simply for one person, but for all people. Jesus is reversing the message of the past to end the wound of the past, to pave a better path for our future. And we get to play a role in that, and we get to play a part in his work today because of that. You see, the ugliness of racism will be exposed and the wound that causes it will be healed. And going forward, things need to be different for God's people. And that's the starting point, this story of where that's going to start to happen. And you want to keep going, read through the book of Acts. You'll see how they fought about this. You'll see how even leaders fought about this. But eventually they recognized that the Gentiles too were grafted into this plan and that Jesus came for all people. And surely some people who read this and saw this, you know, wouldn't have seen it as beautiful, but some people would have saw this story as shameful and wrong and weak and, you know, just to forget all the wounds it hurts in the past. How do you do that? How in the world could Jesus be graceful to this woman, a Canaanite, some would have asked. And we come back to the universal truth that when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves, we can't help but ask the same question how could God show grace to me, a sinner? You see, Bob Goff says it like this. He says, grace never seems fair until you need some. Grace never seems fair until you yourself need some. Forgiving an enemy doesn't seem fair until you yourself need forgiveness. You see, Jesus redefines who we are to love and care for. He goes so far as to define who our neighbor is. And we read about that in the Luke 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Remember, a priest walked on alongside, didn't pay any attention to him. A religious teacher walked on the other side, didn't pay attention to him, didn't want to touch him, didn't want to get unclean. And yet a Samaritan, someone from the outside, much like in the story we read today. The one who had mercy on him, the Samaritan. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And Jesus redefines for us what it means to be a neighbor, He doesn't tell us who our neighbor is. He tells us to also go and be a neighbor to all of those around you, to everyone around you. That's who your neighbor is. And these are new ways of thinking that I think even can creep up on us today. And we need to be careful to think on these things. Not hide them away, but allow God to speak to us. And so for some of us, you know, we assume we don't have as many particulars as we do. We're often blind sometimes, I think, to our own prejudice and biases. I'm speaking to myself here. And yet Jesus asks us to look inward. Because what matters most to him is our heart's condition. Because that's what's going to drive our lives. And we can't afford to be wrong on this. Or ignore this. Or simply continue without some checkups. And so this new way of thinking is that Jesus loves my enemy even as much as he loves me. This new way of thinking in this story was that Jesus has invited the outsiders even in to the table. And so who do we perhaps look down upon? Who do we perhaps want to withhold grace from sometimes? Perhaps there's history behind it. Perhaps there's a wound. Perhaps each of us needs to just go to God and allow him to speak to our own hearts personally on this this morning. Should we make statements about who's in and who's out when it comes to God? You see, whenever people did this, Jesus quickly and decisively acted to include whoever had been you know, excluded in that statement. What about the curse that was so important to Jesus' tribe, his own people for so many years? Well, Jesus invites his tribe to leave that behind. And he does this often, challenging his tribe to think about things in a new way. And so, friends, this morning, Jesus invites us into a new way of thinking. It's not easy. It may take prayer. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take time. It might take effort. But are you willing to walk down and begin down this path that Jesus paves for us today? Where in our lives could we also extend mercy? And how much mercy has been given to us? Let us be thankful. Let's pray today. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And I just thank you. Uh, for your acceptance of all of us and that you love each person in this room. Lord, thank you that despite our sins, our failures, our shortcomings, Lord, that we, Lord, have been shown grace and mercy and we thank you for this gift today in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to walk today, I pray for those who need faith and persistence that you would help us, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would answer our our calls, Lord, I pray, Lord God, for just each person who has needs, Lord God, that your hand would be upon that and that you would meet those needs in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that for each of us today that we would walk out of here experiencing your love afresh and just knowing how much you care for us. And Lord, help us, Lord God, in these new ways of thinking to also pass that on the people and to the world around us and so we thank you for today we thank you for your word and I just pray you just go with us thank you that you're with us in Jesus name amen amen I'll ask everyone to stand today just want to make a quick mention that next week Eric Eric Samuel Tim is here July 1st 909 only Uh, invite your friends it's going to be awesome Uh, I can't wait to have him with us and so in ancient times the one who blessed did so by extending hands and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. If you'd like to receive a blessing, please extend your hands today. Here it is. To God the Father who loved us and made us accepted in the beloved. To God the Son who loved us and loosed us from our own sins with his own blood. To God the Holy Spirit who spreads the love of God abroad in our hearts the one true God be all love and all glory for time and for eternity. Amen. May God go with you this week. We'll see you next week. Have an awesome week and enjoy that, uh, hopefully good weather speaking prophetic there.